Our primary text this morning, I'm going to use a few scriptures, but is Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Our theme this morning is love God, love your neighbor. And the title, you'll see, literally rises out of this passage of scripture. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray for a minute. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus that we have in our own language that we can read, ponder over, explore, and then experiment with as we apply them to the way that we live and to the community around us. I pray that you would continue to give us deep understanding of your word, that we wouldn't let it just fly over our heads or read it and forget about it, but that you would allow your word to stay in our minds and our consciousness so that we can live it out more and more as your spirit guides us. Make us wiser. Make us stronger. Make us more faithful. Thank you for being the God who forgives our sins as often as we confess them to you. Thank you for being a God who doesn't call perfect people to the church, but a God who continues to rescue people and lift us up again and again, over and over, as we seek to make our lives correspond more and more to the radical grace that you give to your people. Lord, I ask that you'd walk with those who are here this morning who may be kicking the tires and asking great questions about the Bible, about you as their God, how we can believe these things. I pray that you would lead each one to a place of deep confidence that there is a God in this world who loves them. And that there is a Lord who forgives the many things that cause shame in our lives. We pray for each of us, from oldest to youngest, that you would continue to provide next steps in terms of how we live out our faith, how we act wisely, how we make the most of the talents and the resources and the gifts you've given us. And we ask that you would make us stronger as a church as we go through this summer of love and exploring all the different Bible texts that we've been looking at that have to do with love, make us a more and more loving and gracious church. Loving in the way that we handle truth, loving in the way that we handle people, loving in the way that we serve our neighbors, loving in the way that we we respond with the hope that we have, even to the angriest of the people that we meet in our community. We pray that you will transform us and that you will transform the culture around us by the power of Jesus' name. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you've been around our church for very long, you have probably heard us talking about the priorities of loving God and loving your neighbors. You've heard it again and again. So this morning, I don't want to simply tell you something that the majority of you have already heard. Instead, I'd like to focus on doing this in a way that answers two questions that I'm going to give you right up front. The first question is, can we really do this? 
And the second question is, if so, what happens when we throw ourselves into God's plan? Our topic this morning is love God, love your neighbor. And as of today, we are now nine weeks into this All About Love summer series. In this summer of love, we're learning that with Jesus, life has a transforming impact that often surprises us. And my hope is that we are beginning to believe that God can literally transform people and places when we wholly lean into his plan. So this morning, I'd like to make time for describing what can happen when an unlikely person receives God's grace and mercy and then embarks upon a lifetime of loving God and loving neighbors. That's our focus today. So good morning, North River. I am so glad that you're here. I think we're in for uh, a wonderful exploration of how we apply these texts, not how, how we just learn about them. And I want to welcome everybody who's here in our worship center here in Pembroke. I also want to offer a warm welcome to all of you who are watching online. I'm glad that you found us. I'm glad that you set aside this time and that you are with us right now. If you happen to be newer to North River, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, let us know how you found us. Send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org, or respond on our website in some way, or on, on, the, on the live stream that you're watching. There will be a way for you to do that. How did you find us? Uh, what's your experience with North River so far? Were you invited by a friend? Or did you find, find us through your own online search? What are you learning so far through your connection with North River? And I hope that you will keep taking next steps in your journey with Jesus as the Lord unfolds those steps for you. So our questions today, again, are can we really do this and what happens when we throw ourselves into God's plan? Now, I'd like to start with four love principles from Jesus that prompt where we're going to go with the rest of this message. And I'm going to move through these rather quickly. Here's number one. Loving God with all we have is the greatest command. That's what we learned from Jesus in Matthew 22. The opening verses of that section that I just read say that Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he adds this commentary, this is the first and greatest commandment. Now, this statement of Jesus was prompted by a question that came from a Pharisee. This took place during the final week that led to Jesus' crucifixion. In other words, the, the final week of his life here on earth before the cross. And Jesus was teaching openly in Jerusalem's temple courts. In the temple courts, there are all kinds of different groups of people. There were non-Jewish people who were just curious about what was going on. And then there were different factions or sects within uh, Judaism of that day. One of them, the Pharisees, noticed that Jesus had silenced another one of these groups called the Sadducees by pointing out the short-sightedness of one of their hypothetical questions that they had just thrown on, on Jesus, and it had to do with marriage in the end times. So the Pharisees got together, and they tried to stump Jesus with a question of their own. One of them, who was considered to be an expert in the law, which means the expert in the Old Testament, especially all of the, the legal portions of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, posed this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, it's interesting that the text here in Matthew says that they considered this a test. But for Jesus, this was a layup. He knew the scriptures so well. And so he gave an answer that came from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
So you have to realize Jesus wasn't just making up an answer. He was actually answering from the Old Testament scriptures. Now, had Jesus chosen one of the Ten Commandments that shows up in Exodus, they might have challenged his choice. Why that one? Why is that the greatest commandment? But he chose the command that was repeated in every Jewish service and still is today in every synagogue around the world, week after week, year after year. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Then he states that this is the first and greatest commandment. That still rings true for us today. Loving God, Jesus was saying, comes before everything else in terms of priorities. If love itself comes from God, then loving the creator in response, the one who is also the creator of love, makes sense when we put that before everything else. We're simply saying thank you by loving God back. We worship God because of his incomparable greatness and for his incomparable goodness to his people. So why is loving God first and greatest? Think about it. Put anything else in that first place and your life becomes tremendously unbalanced. Put your kids above everything else and make them first place in your life and you're going to raise entitled and selfish children. Put your spouse before everything else in life as your absolute top love and you begin to put that person on a pedestal that they can never live up to. Put your job before everything else in your life, and pretty soon all the relationships in your life will suffer because they know they don't matter to you as much as grabbing the brass ring does. Put the pursuit of success, success or wealth or some favorite possession ahead of everything else, and the people in your life will begin to feel used and devalued on the pathway forward. Only when God is our greatest love do we find the proper balance. He asks you and me to love him first, and then you realize he loves your kids even more than you do. He loves your spouse even more than you do. He loves the rest of your family even more than you do. He loves your friends, and he loves everybody else in your sphere of influence even more than you do. Only when God is in first place do other things find the appropriate balance. When anything else is in that first place, it becomes our idol, and it knocks everything else out of balance. So as soon as this begins to sink in, Jesus then leads us to the second greatest command in the same passage. So principle number two is that loving our neighbors is next in importance to Jesus. It's just after loving God. So he goes on in verse 39, he says, and the second is like it, meaning the second greatest is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds this commentary, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Again, Jesus was not making something up. Uh, something up. He was quoting from the Old Testament, in this case from Leviticus 19.18. Now, I know some of you get very frustrated when you start to read from the Bible at the beginning, and then you hit Leviticus, and you think, what on earth is Leviticus for? I had somebody tell me that just last week. He said, what is this all about? Can you make sense of this? Well, here's a nugget chosen by Jesus from Leviticus that matters. God the Creator instructed His people to love their neighbors as themselves. The command is that old. His answer tells us that authentic love from God isn't isolating, but rather it leads us into love for other people. When we really love God fully, that love takes us toward love for other people. They go hand in hand. So Jesus told us to start loving 
our neighbors. So, who are our neighbors? Who are the people he has in mind for us to love? Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Uh, I'll just summarize it in case you haven't read it or heard it for a long time or for some who maybe never have heard it. But Jesus tells a story about a Jewish man who's walking down the road. He's mugged, robbed, beaten, and left for dead on the road. A priest walks by, and then a Levite, they're both religious leaders in the, the system of that day, and each one finds reasons why their day and the things they had to do were too important, and neither one stops to help the man who's lying there bleeding in the street. One of them reasons that if I stop to help, somebody else is going to jump out of the bushes. Perhaps they'll mug and they'll rob me too. And then a third person comes that Jesus identifies in this story. It's a Samaritan. The Samaritans were a minority group that most first century Jewish people would have nothing to do with. And this Samaritan walks down the same path. Jesus' initial audience would have recoiled and reacted a little bit negatively when he inserted this Samaritan man into the parable. But this is the one who stops, who tends to the man's wounds, who takes him to the nearest inn. He gives the innkeeper money and tells him to look after the injured man, even promising that if more is owed when he comes back through that same town after he's conducted his business, he'll settle up and he'll pay the innkeeper even more at the end of his business trip. Jesus finishes the story by asking this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to this man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the, the obvious answer that comes from the Pharisees, who are the ideological opponents of Jesus at that point, was, of course, the, the man who helped him. They can't even bring it to say the Samaritan was the good neighbor, but the man who stopped to help him, he was the neighbor. When Jesus told this parable, it exposed the folly for all time of any of us seeing ourselves as religious people and then ignoring the needs of others because we are so busy doing churchy or religious things. Does that make sense to you? Absolute folly if we talk about things like that here, but then we don't live it out when we leave the room. Instead, he shows us that loving God is inseparably linked to loving our neighbors. And our neighbor is the person nearby, whoever it is, who has a legitimate need that we are able to meet. So, real love for God means that we become the person God distributes his love through. Love God, then love your neighbors. And then here's the third principle. Sometimes we talk about these as the great commandment. But we often, often connect the great commandment with another passage from Matthew's gospel known as the Great Commission. And we find that the Great Commission reveals mission objectives for those people that we love. Two verses from Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says in some of his final words to his disciples, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commandment is often combined with the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Well, it's these words of Jesus that formed the missional instructions to his original disciples after the resurrection and just before he returned to the heavens. They centered around four action commands. Go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. 
our love for God and understanding of the gospel of Jesus, out of our love for God and out of our understanding of, of the gospel of Jesus, we don't only act with kindness, we also act with purpose toward the goal of helping others become disciples of Jesus. So we do this as we go, wherever life takes us. We follow these mission priorities. Norman Debbie, wherever you go, not just for here in the Marshfield area where you guys live, but when you go to South Carolina, take these same principles with you. You are disciples of Jesus. He's going to use you in a new way in a new place. That's true for all of us when he moves us around like chess pieces wherever he leads us to go. Second priority there is to make disciples. Disciples are simply people who are learning and embracing the way of Jesus. Sometimes we confuse this, and we we think that to be called a disciple means that you're a very serious Christian or you're an expert, but the term actually means a learner. I got news for you. I'm 64 years old, and I'm still learning to catch up with Jesus, and so are you. We're all learners, but learners don't just hear the words we begin to put them in practice if we are becoming disciples. And so that's where the greatest part of learning comes on. Why baptizing? When a follower of Jesus is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that person is declaring that he or she identifies with Jesus and that from now on sees himself or herself as a new person living a new life because of Christ. We are people who've been given a new start. We're all people who've messed up, but all people who've been given a new start. That's the beauty of Christian faith. It's not perfect people, messed up people who get to start over in the power of Jesus. And then teaching. Very simply, we we constantly need teaching and reminding about the words, principles, and priorities of Jesus. We forget so fast because there are so many distractions in this life and detours that lead us off the path. So we need continual reinforcement and instruction along the way. Nothing brings me greater joy than seeing someone I love take forward steps in following the way of Jesus. By the way, these steps are summarized in North River's three mission priorities that you'll see. You'll actually see them hanging from the light posts on your way out the driveway later this morning. Reach, grow, and go. First, we reach out and we take the offer of grace that we find in Jesus. And next, we grow in our knowledge of his truth and grace. And so many of our ministries are built around growing in knowledge, but the goal part of it is really, really important. So when Christy was talking about this big event, that's part of our go strategy. How do we get out of the walls here and how do we show people outside that we love them? Now, you and I have the opportunity to do that every day of the year. What we try to do is have one great event that jumpstarts that whole process, and we make a big splash. And for the last several years, we've been doing that as close to 9-11 as possible. So rather than just mourning one of the great sad events of our American history, we're trying to do something about it with positive effort and energy. Long-time North River folks have heard much of this before, but here's the part that may be new for you. This is all empowered by the great collaboration. So you have the, the great commandment, the great commission, and the great collaboration. What's the great collaboration? John chapter 14, Jesus says these words to his disciples that are meant for us too. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. 
The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus here is describing the role of the Holy Spirit. And notice the way that Jesus starts. He says, first, if you love me, keep my commands. Then comes the promise, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He is describing the Holy Spirit, that God the Father sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who prays for the Father to do it, but the Holy Spirit is God's enduring presence with us and in us forevermore. Notice the connections here. We love Jesus and keep his commands. Jesus prays to the Father for us. By the way, he's still doing that. He, he intercedes on your behalf, the scriptures say. He prays for you more than you pray for anybody else. And the Father sends the Holy Spirit, who is the presence of God for us and with us and in us forever. This is the great collaboration that we are partnering with God, we are partnering with Jesus, and we are partnering with the Holy Spirit who empowers us. So the great commandment and the great commission are empowered by the great collaboration. It starts with love for God, love for Jesus. Love for God leads us to love our neighbors, the great commandment. Love for our neighbors leads us to living out the great commission where we, we go, we teach, we baptize, we introduce people to Jesus. And living this way is empowered by an intimate relationship with not only Jesus, but with his Father, the Creator, and with the Holy Spirit who guides us. This is the great collaboration. In other words, you can't do all this on your own. You can only do it through the great collaboration with the Holy Spirit being active in your life. God the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and you together. So here's the big idea for this morning. The great commandment and the great commission are empowered by the great collaboration. I like the way that David Jeremiah points this out. He says, God loves you as though you are the only person in the world, and he loves everyone the way that he loves you. This connects all that. It's why he loves us and he sends us to love other people. We are the distributing hands of God's love. Now, here's the question. Does this really work? So I'd like to tell you a story. And the reason I race through all that is to carve out a little bit, little of, time, little bit of time to tell this story. The Gospel, Gospel Coalition recently posted a story about a woman from the south side of Chicago named Pearl. If you've never lived around Chicago, you may not understand that the south side is the toughest, most crime-ridden part of Chicagoland. Pearlene Willis grew up in the 60s in a gang-infested south side of Chicago. A, a section of Chicago called Roseland. 30 years ago, she was a single mom with three kids from three different fathers without a job or a high school education and mired in 18 years of constant drug and alcohol use. When she was about 15, she was betrayed by a friend, drugged and gang raped, and she never got out of that. It just created a downward spiral in her life. Life got so bad and complicated that she got to the place where she described how she used her welfare checks on drugs and alcohol and then sold her body in order to feed her children. And she couldn't see a way out of the trap. The first sign of hope in Pearl's life came when her oldest son, who was 14, asked if he and his sisters could go to church with their grandparents. The kids came home from church and they found Pearl lying in her own vomit that day. And they cleaned her up and they literally said, Mama, Jesus can fix you. Imagine hearing that from your kids. 
And as Pearl began to notice changes in her kids, she decided to go with them. When she got there, she challenged the teacher that she met there, but the teacher wasn't put off by her interruptions and by her rudeness. He and his wife shared the gospel with Pearl, and Pearl had a hard time accepting this because she wasn't raised on forgiveness and grace and mercy. She only knew she had messed up, and because her life was so messed up, she was convinced God had given up on her and forgotten her, and there was no hope for her. Later that same day, Pearl realized that she had gone all day without drugs or alcohol in her system. And she started to feel sick because she was going through that withdrawal. She fell on her knees and said, Lord, if this is true, and if you take away the pain that I feel, I won't get high anymore. Later on, she said that God didn't take the pain away, but for some reason she felt like a newborn baby after reaching out on that prayer. The load of sin was taken away. The load of shame was taken away from her life. The dirtiness that she felt from that rape more than 15 years before, that she'd been trying to scrub away for years, literally, was gone. And right there on the kitchen floor, she realized God had cleaned her up. Then God began to reveal his neighborhood plan through Pearl. She went to church, she studied her Bible, she began to wait on the Lord and ask the Lord what he, what he wanted to do in her life. She had slip-ups she would fall, but she'd get back up and she'd keep going, and more and more consistency was built into her life. And then, after months and months of going back to church and walking with God, she started to notice her neighbors in her neighborhood with new eyes. 82% of Chicago's kids were raised by single moms like her, and she saw a lot of those kids being raised by grandparents because mom was on drugs and dad was in jail. So she started taking in her kids' friends every afternoon. It grew to be to the point where there are 35 to 40 kids who are in her home every afternoon. She'd help them do their homework, or at least she'd help as best as she could. Remember, she didn't even have a high school education. While they were in her home, she taught them what she was learning from the Bible. Sometimes she fed them. Sometimes she kept them overnight if their parents weren't around. And Pearl washed their clothes so that they could go to church and not feel ashamed like she did the first time when she went back to church. One day, Pearl hosted a Bible study for moms in her home. One of them couldn't read, and because of that, she couldn't figure out which bus she had to take to get home. And out of anger, Pearl said to her, look, if you go back to school, I'll, I'll daycare your children. And that started the plan in action. Pearl felt the Lord leading her to start the Roseland Community Good News Daycare. The policy in her daycare is that uh, young moms who are still trying to finish high school pay nothing. In other words, they could bring their kids to her every day for nothing. Older moms would pay $50 a month, and she would find a way to come up with the rest of what she needed. But here was the catch that she asked for all of them if they were going to get that deal. She only accepts moms who agree to t attend her weekly Bible study. Pearl noticed that these moms had never grown up, most of them had never grown up in a Bible-teaching church. And those who did go to church were used to hear people prophesying that they will have this or they will have that. And so they were waiting for instant prosperity to magically appear, and it never did. Instead, Pearl told them that they're all sinners who need to be saved by the grace of God and that he does that regularly. And that as their lives begin to line up with God's plans, he will give them what they actually need Instead of blaming God or blaming others for what they don't have or their miracle not coming through, she taught them to live like a new creation. 
over time, that Good News Daycare led to buying up an abandoned house next to her daycare. Her neighbors helped her do this. Over time, she bought up five former drug houses on the same block. She met some opposition from neighbors who were involved in the drug culture that was very thick in that area. Pearl told them, God sent me to tell you about Jesus. This daycare is the vehicle he's going to use to do that. Can you imagine having that boldness to say that? They didn't all go along, surprised. But they reached a truce with her. She didn't call the cops on them, and they left her alone. When they made noise at night, she stopped getting angry. She would cook for them, and then she'd bring them food. And she found that whatever she fed them, the noise would go down. And so over time, the noise went down. Their respect for her went up. And it became quieter at night. When someone was shot or went to jail, Pearl was the first one they would come talk to. When teenage girls became pregnant, they would bring the children to Pearl. The Chicago Tribune interviewed her and, and, and quoted a neighbor as saying, even the dope dealers and the car thieves respect her. Her car is the only one on the block that still has hubcaps. <laughs> and here are some of the results from 30 years of Pearl serving her neighbors. Since Pearl moved in, seven abandoned houses have been torn down, making way for her growing daycare center that now serves 64 children. She founded a coffee shop where people could come in and, and they have Bible verses written all over the walls in the coffee shop. A garden, a playground, and a housing unit that serves single moms, all started by Pearl's ideas. And now they're hoping to add a grocery store because you, you can imagine with that kind of crime in that kind of community, grocery stores don't want to come and open there. But there's enough change that a grocery store is talking about launching in the Roseland community. She has celebrated the graduation of 75 mothers from high school, 37 from certificate programs, and 49 of them from college all sparked by a woman who never finished high school. Many of her neighbors have come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. She's been interviewed by TV stations all around Chicago, and support for her goals has started to stream in from other Christians who just want to be a part of the story. Pearl simply says, none of this was my plan. God had a plan for the people of Roseland, and he invited me to be a part of it. I never knew what he was doing, and I made a lot of stupid moves but even those were part of his plan. Pearl closed the interview by saying, if God can save me, he can do anything. Yes, we can live this way. The answer is yes, because of the great commandment, the great commission, and the great collaboration. The Great Commandment and the Great Commission are empowered by the great collaboration with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and you. All right, if you dare, will you read this closing prayer with me? It kind of takes what we've just gone through, brings it home a little bit. If you're willing, let's do this together. Lord Jesus, fill my heart with your love. Grant me a love not only for you, but help me to love my neighbors. Let your love transform the way I see myself. Let your love transform my dreams. Align my dreams with your plans. Let the world see what you can do.